Hello and greetings. We're so glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you're doing well. My name is Ethan and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. And today we're going to actually address the 50-ton elephant in the room. And that is sexuality. As human beings, we all have sexual desires. And it's no secret that our society is obsessed with sexuality. It's something, though, that often, especially in, in, in the church climate, we find awkward and uncomfortable to discuss in public. And so we don't. And we try to minimize and suppress conversations of it in public. Meanwhile, there's a lot of people out there, and maybe you're one of them, who have a lot of questions about how we're supposed to look at sexuality properly. A lot of people are struggling to overcome sexual temptation and sexual sin. And I recognize it's very awkward and uncomfortable to talk about it. But we need to break through this wall of silence so that we can address sexuality in a mature but biblical way. Because this awkwardness exists, a lot of education about sexuality is not done through the Word of God, but from culture. Yes, I know that you probably heard a lot of sermons about denouncing sexual immoral behavior. Even if you don't have a lot of church background, if you think about Christianity, one of the things that comes to mind is a condemnation of the of inappropriate sexual behavior. That's something that you hear a lot about. Uh, adolescents, the young people have heard a lot of times that they need to wait until marriage. And just wait till marriage, wait till marriage, wait till marriage to avoid uh, fornication. And that's well and good. Those are things that are, are, are commendable in many ways. But how does a condemnation of sexual morality and just a t telling people, other people to wait lead to a healthy formation of understanding of sexual human, human sexuality excuse me, in a godly way if that's all that people are hearing? Meanwhile, if, if we are pushing ideas very well-intentioned, uh, but uh, talking about sex is dirty, or that do not touch as the way that young people are supposed to think about sex as they develop in, in, Christ, in their Christianity, in their, in their faith, uh, how are they going to be able to develop a healthy understanding of how God made them and how they are to best exercise that in their particular situation? Uh, a lot of times uh, we think the parents should do it. Parents find that very awkward and don't do it. Uh, you'd like to think that there are wise, older women and women who would talk about it, but again, we've got this wall of silence about it. And so far too often, uh, the real work of, of sexual education is left to culture, where uh, people find out their ideas about who they are as, as, as sexual creatures and how they should behave as sexual creatures uh, from the Internet, from education, from, uh, in classes, from peers, a lot of peer information, un unfortunately. And it's very distorted because of those things. And the time is long past to reverse this trend, to ground our understanding of human sexuality and what God has revealed. Because the way it's going now, far too often Christians don't seem very different from worldly people. Divorce rates are consistent, adultery is a little better, but not well, better enough. Uh, Christians are struggling with all kinds of sexual temptations. And, of course, it, you, you see on the news all the time, there seems to be a, just a constant series of people who profess Jesus and who have a reputation for holiness or piety, and they get caught in some sexual sin. <coughs> Excuse me, they've, they've been caught in adultery, or they confess adultery. Uh, there's been some past abuse or something of this sort. And, of course, the, the one that the media tends to love the most a, a pastor or a preacher denouncing homosexuality and then found to have been participating in homosexual behavior himself. And all of this is coming because we're, we're, we're too influenced by the world. So let's turn to God and let's consider a theology of sexuality. You might think, wait, 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 how can sexuality have anything to do with theology? Well, there's a lot more in that connection than we might imagine. But how? Well, let's consider uh, what we can see from the scriptures about the nature of sexuality. We learn about human sexuality from the beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man, created man in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. 
then in verse 31, that God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So, God made humans, male and female, made in his image, and he says it's very good. How this goes down is explained in greater detail in the next chapter. Verse 7, we're told that Yahweh God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils a breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And Yahweh God planted the garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Then in verse 18, Then Yahweh God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now the ground Yahweh God had formed, every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the livestock, and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that Yahweh God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, Isha in Hebrew, because she was taken out of man, or Ish. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and will hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So God here not only makes man out of dirt, but he then makes woman out of a bone from its selah here, um, which is is called uh, a rib. Uh, but it just means really something from his side. We're not sure exactly what that refers to. Uh, but from it he makes a woman. And then we have this declaration that man shall leave his father and mother and will hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Why, why is that so important? Well, uh, the Lord Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 19, when he's asked about divorce, he, he, he wants to ground an understanding of marriage from the beginning. In verse 3, Four of Matthew 19, Jesus says, Have you not read? That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and there and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not men separate. So Jesus goes back and appeals to both of the passages that we've talked about from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And said, hey, this is how God has set this up. God made them from the beginning, male and female. He, and he said in Genesis 2.24 that they shall leave father and mother, cling to, to hold fast to each other, and two will become one flesh. They're no longer two, one flesh. What God has joined, man is not to separate. <clears throat> so from these three passages, we see that, that two becoming one flesh is talking about sex. That it's part of our nature as human beings. It's part of our nature as human beings made in His image. And that it is good. That men and women are both made in God's image. It's very important. And they're made for each other. In fact, Paul will meditate upon this further in a different context in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 8. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. So, yes, you know, woman was made for man, but all men are born from women. Uh, a very important fundamental thing is that Everyone who is alive, every human who is alive, is alive because of the participation of a male and a female. And both are equally integral to that uh, ability to be alive, to, to have uh, children to continue the, the line. So each has each other in the Lord. And so the, it's very important to understand that the goodness of sexuality properly applied is established throughout time. And this is something that is often difficult for people who, who've heard a lot of the negative about sexuality. There's a lot of negative negative out there. We have to emphasize that negative times, but we do need to remember that throughout time there has been the positive, and that sex has been a good thing throughout time. After all, all of the people who've ever been begotten, except for the Lord Jesus, were begotten through uh, sex. Uh, and all those who were parents participated in sexual behavior. Uh, and, of course, even those who were barren. You think about Sarah, uh, Ray, uh, for a while, uh, Rachel, and Rebecca, uh, <clears throat> Hannah, 
Elizabeth, how, well, how, how could they be bare? Well, they were engaging in sexual intercourse, but they did not have children. Uh, that's because we, we see that there's this constant uh, goodness established uh, of sexuality. Solomon in Proverbs 5 provides uh, further understanding of the, the, the validation of sexuality in, in marriage. In verse 15, Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. And of course, perhaps the greatest expression of, of love, Song of Solomon which many people have been puzzled for years why that's in the Bible, but we have in Song of Solomon, uh, written from the hand of Solomon, a uh, love poetry, praising love, the visceral nature of love, the erotic nature of love, uh, in all of its fullness. And it's in Scripture because God has given it to mankind and it is good. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in the New Covenant, beginning in verse 2, Paul says, Because of the temptations of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And in verse 9, that if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Uh, the Hebrew author, in Hebrews chapter 13, in verse 4, declares, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. And so even in the New Covenant, there is an affirmation that sexuality has its place in marriage, and that it is to be held in honor. And so, again... Old Covenant, New Covenant, Adam till today, sexuality has its place, and it is good. So a lot of damage has been done in the Western view of sex because of Augustine's teaching about transmission of original sin through sex. And therefore, sex was tainted by association, and in much of Christian conscience, remains tainted. That there's always something intrinsically dirty, something intrinsically polluting, something intrinsically wrong with sexual intercourse. And that's why we need to powerfully affirm that sexuality is good. And like many other good things, it has its proper place. That Yes, it can be abused through sin and corruption. But just because it can be abused does not mean that the created goodness has been eliminated. So, sex has its place. And it is good. But how can an understanding of sexuality inform theology? That's what we're trying to get to. And to get there, we need to go a little further down this line of understanding our sexuality. And this is where we need to talk about <clears throat> what sexuality means for humanity. In Psalm 139, 13-14, uh, the psalmist declares that God has made man, and man is fearfully and wonderfully made. As we saw in Genesis chapter 1, God has made man in his image. He made them on the sixth day, and he made them with the animals. In Psalm 8, 4-6, through 6, the psalmist waxes eloquently about human beings. What is uh, man that you account for him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him just a little lower than the angels, and you've given him dominion over everything, which was verses 28 of Genesis 1, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, and to subdue it, and to have dominion over it. <coughs> and so, we have humanity in a very interesting position where man is made in the image of God, but human beings are part of the animal kingdom. We are part of the mammal class, the primate order, part of the hominid family, Homo genus, and sapiens is our species. And we can look at other animal species, and we can see many physical characteristics that are similar of, you know, mammals, all the mothers feed their children with milk. And that's true of human females, primate females, uh, rabbit females, cat females, etc. Uh, you, you see other forms of similarity. We are created as animals, and yet 
there are things that are distinctive about us that show that we are also made in the image of God. And interestingly, this is also very true in terms of sexuality and sexual behavior, as can even be seen on a physical level. Now, this is the time we're going to try to talk very clearly and frankly and scientifically about certain elements of the of the physical nature of men and women. And if you I encourage you to bear with me that there is a very important point that we're getting to and we're going to handle this in a very mature and appropriate manner. But there are certain things that really demonstrate the distinctiveness of human sexuality. And when you look at all the evidence, it points in a very compelling direction. When you look at the human, you look at human females versus animal females in terms of breasts. In humans, milk production in females is done through nipples and breasts, and that there are fat deposits normally around that breast. That no other animal has those kind of breasts. That breasts are only sexualized in humans. In the animal kingdom, milk production is in teats, which, yes, are nipples, but there's no fat deposits near those teats to create breasts, and they're not sexualized whatsoever. Uh, they're simply for the feeding of the young. The female's ovulation in humans is not that obvious. There's no changed physical state. Yes, there's now some evidence that suggests that females do release some pheromones at ovulation uh, based upon some sociological studies, and there are some signs that can be picked up on an unconscious level. Yes, females may have a higher sexual level of sexual desire at ovulation, but when we compare it to the animal ovulation response... The human female's response is rather inconspicuous. Because in animals, ovulation is extremely obvious. Uh, some uh, parts of the body grow in size. Uh, the smells are very powerful. And uh, <clears throat> it's those smells, those, those hormones are designed to trigger male response. Uh, and, and if you've seen a nature show, you see how that all goes down. Also, in terms of the human female, human females can have an orgasm. That's, and that's a release that they can experience, that animal females may have a release of brain chemicals after copulation, but it's nothing resembling an orgasm, the kind of release that the human female can have. They're still trying to figure out on a scientific level what they're going to say is the reason for that. Uh, many of the prevailing theories have something to do though, with connectivity and with uh, relationship. We look at the human male... When it comes to the, mean, main, the means by which an erection can take place, it's not based upon bones in humans. That it's a significant increase of blood flow to the penis based upon mental response. See, in animals, erection is based most often on a penis bone. And it's an erection that's instinctual response to the environment. That the, 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 uh, the male gets the sign from the female through hormones, pheromones, or whatever. The penis bone works in action, and everything takes place, and it's entirely instinctual. Because in both males and females, when it comes to human responses, uh, there needs to be some kind of arousal in order for <clears throat> human sexuality to take place. And males have to have some kind of arousal to obtain and to maintain an erection. Uh, and even when such arousals are in response to hormones, it is still centered and maintained in the brain. And female humans also ex uh, experience arousal through mental stimuli. Animals don't really have arousal. It's an instinctual response to female pheromones. And that also is related to sexual period. And this is a very interesting one. Humans can engage in sexual intercourse at any time. They're not only limited to the times where procreation can take place. However, animals only have procre you know, sexual intercourse when procreation can take place. Uh, so, uh, females in heat, uh, that's when they have, uh, the males come around and sexual intercourse takes place. If the female is not in heat, you don't have that kind of behavior. Um, and this is seen in most of the animal world. Humans seem very distinctive in the fact that they can engage in sexual behavior uh, even when uh, no child can be conceived. And that's also true in terms of what we call menopause. Uh, in human females, uh, 
there's a period of menopause where there's no longer the the ovulation process, and yet human females can still participate in sexual intercourse. Yet animals no longer have that kind of sexual function. Although, granted, in most of the animal kingdom, the idea of menopause is, is, is foreign. That most uh, females are, throughout most of their lives, producing, able to produce children. So what that means is, when it comes to quantity of sex, that in humans, sex is a frequent and consistent uh, pro- process and pattern throughout life. It's a major part of adult life. Whereas in animals, yes, it's, a, it, it's frequent periods of fertility, and there's a lot of effort expended uh, on, on that kind of behavior, as you can see on any nature documentary. But when it comes to uh, the entire lifespan of the animal, um, there's only a couple months a year where that's going to take place. The rest of the time will be spent in, in the other parts of life, uh, where that is not the case with humans. So, the, the human sexuality leads, involves genitals and leads reproduction, as is true among other animals. When you look at the entire picture, human sexuality, its design and, and mechanics even, have a radically different purpose than that in the animal kingdom that they serve more and greater functions than the, the functions that it uses in the animal kingdom. Because human sexuality demands participation in the mind, it's not instinctual behavior. That even on a chemical basis, the human brain is flooded with hormones that's designed to foster attachment and connection during sexual intercourse. The emotions are involved. And the ability to constantly participate in sexual intercourse when procreation is not possible demonstrates that there's more to it than procreation. And that it has this very important place in establishing and maintaining a relationship between a man and a woman. So, human sexuality involves the body, the mind, and the emotions. But why? To what end does this work? And this gets to the purpose of why sex. And, and, and this has always been argued throughout generations. And, and, and most of, of the history of the church and Christianity in general, so to speak, there's been a, a very strong emphasis on procreation. And it's very tempting these days with the, all the arguments swirling about different types of sexuality to go back and to really affirm that. And yet, excuse me, the whole time, the scriptures have provided a consistent answer. Genesis 2.24. The two cling to one another and the two become one flesh. Proverbs 5, 18-19, Enjoy the wife of your youth, and be intoxicated always with her love. Let her breast satisfy you at all times, for crying out loud. Matthew 19, 4-6, The two become one flesh, and thus they are no longer two, but one. And what we need to understand is that sex is defined in Scripture as two becoming one flesh. And, and this is sometimes a, a problematic concept, that people... Uh, want to look at the two becoming one flesh and to make it more romantic, to make it more about the uh, bond in the partner, about the marriage, and less about the sex. And if we just had Genesis 2.24 and Matthew 19.4-6, there would be a point there. But we also have 1 Corinthians 6.16 with which we need to grapple. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. Now, in this context, he's talking about sexual behavior, about part of engaging in, in, in the kind of behavior you do with a prostitute, with a porne in Greek, and of course, sexual behavior, sexual morality is pornea, what you do with a porne. Uh, he's not at all trying to suggest that you get married to a prostitute when you have sex with her. Instead, what Paul is doing is defining terms. That if you have sex with a prostitute, you become one flesh with her, because the two become one flesh. Paul clearly demonstrates that the two become one flesh is the way of talking about sex. You want to talk about the relationship, it's the hold fast, the clinging to one another uh, that's to take place before the two become one flesh. That clinging is the commitment of marriage, and that's very important. But the two becoming one flesh is the sexual relationship that binds the clinging. And so sex is designed to bring together a man and his wife once they have left father and mother and they have clung to one another. And this is consistent with all physical evidence based on human sexuality. Now, why do we go through that whole display of, uh, of all these 
kind of graphic descriptions of, of human sexuality. Well, because Romans 1 and verse 20, we're told that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And we think a lot of times about the eternal power. And we talk about the mountains and the sea and all the natural forces and the great power invested therein. And those do testify to the humongous power of God. But also notice their divine nature. Keep that in mind. Divine nature. And what is the divine nature? But for our purposes, we can see that a lot of times God is making his purposes known in how things are created. And with sexuality, it's, it's very hard to deny, because what we're looking for here is, okay, humans are made in the image of God. God has left, made his, established a divine nature in the creation. So, especially looking at humans, all of the things that make humans distinct have the potential of telling us something about the nature of God in us. When it comes to sexuality, we've got a lot of these differences, where the rest of the animal kingdom is much more instinctual about sex, and it's all about procreation. It's not the way it is among humans. That there are mental and emotional components of human sexuality and its frequency that demonstrate its purpose in cementing and reinforcing a relationship of a man and a woman. But that does lead to a question, what about procreation? Because you know, that is a, a major part of sexuality, you know, and it, we shouldn't deny that. That, in fact, procreation is the expected consequence of sexuality, and it maintains its importance as that. The fact that it's not its purpose, but its consequence, does not make it any less important. But think about what it means to have a childbearing as the consequence of sexuality. Think about it. Offspring represent the ultimate demonstration of the two becoming one flesh in Genesis 2.24. One of the great things about uh, Hebrew, and we can see that in Genesis chapter 4, in the beginning of chapter 4. You know, Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden. And then Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore a son. Hebrew yada, to know. That in Hebrew, we, that's a euphemism. That to know involves to have sex. And that's a very nice flower. There's also the go into, which we see many times, which is a much more violent, much more grotesque in many ways, uh, but but not indicating necessarily that there's this distinction between the, the two, because in marital relationships that seem otherwise to be fine, you have the, the, the going-in metaphor. But the idea of to know, that Adam knew his wife Eve, that there is some kind of experiential understanding in sexual intercourse. And the produce of that is children, Cain and Abel, all children, as we saw in First Corinthians 11, 8 through 12, need a father and a mother. That's the one constant. No matter what we've done, we have not been able to change this. There is a sperm and an egg that need to meet. Every single human being on earth has a biological mother and a biological father. That a man and a woman are both necessary in order to create a new human being. And if you think about a child, Think about any child. In their mental, emotional, and physical makeup, they exhibit characteristics of father and mother. In fact, when you have a new child, a baby, uh, and as children grow up, it becomes almost uh, a spectator sport among family members to try to ascertain the characteristics of the child that are like each of the parents. Uh, This child has his father's nose. This child has his mother's eyes. Uh, That child is moody, just like his mother. That child uh, is just as reambunctious as his father. We do that because we have come to expect. Because every child you know, has half their chromosomes from their mother and half from their father, that we're going to see physical characteristics, emotional characteristics, and mental characteristics that are consistent with the parents. And it's really beautiful, because in a child we see the two becoming one flesh. Because in each child you have two, mother and father, characteristics, mental, emotional, physical of two, but it's one person. And so we see the combination of that. Uh, you, you literally have walking around the combination of two people in one person. And that is what each of us are in terms of the heritage that we've been given from our parents. 
So that's all well and good, right? We, we, we understand sexuality is a good thing. We understand human sexuality is on a completely different plane than animal sexuality. That involves the, the body, yes, but it also involves emotions and the mind. And that sex has this connective function that's supposed to exist within marriage. And that children are the consequence of it, but are really the manifestation of it. The two becoming one. So how does any of that have anything to do with theology? But... Think about it much in every way. And this is where it becomes difficult, people, because a lot of times we've got this hesitance in the church to see much about the body in positive or divine terms. I mean, God is spirit, right? John 4.24. The one thing that we constantly affirm is that uh, God is not a human being. God is not physical. God is not flesh. And that's very true. On the other hand, let's go back to the idea of the divine nature. What is the divine nature? You know, we talk about God as spirit. That, that talks about kind of his, his essence, so to speak. What's his nature? Well, in Deuteronomy 6, 4-6, through 6, the Great Declaration, Yahweh, our God, Yahweh, is one. God is one. And yet in the New Testament, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In John 1, 1, 2 Peter 1, 21, that... Uh, the prophets did not speak on their own accord, but uh, God spoke through them. Because the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. The Holy Spirit is God. So, we have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We have an idea of how that works in John 17, beginning in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you loved me." So Jesus here speaks of the being in the Father, and the Father being in Him, and yet they remain distinct persons. Well, what, how is that possible? Well, this is hard for us humans to grasp, and a lot of it is beyond us. But there's this word that was used among the ancient Greeks. The word is perichoresis. And a perichoretic relationship, we have participants indwell each other without having their distinctiveness and personhood relinquished. Uh, we think about certain parallels that we cannot think of that in, in the abstract we can talk about in principle it's difficult you think about music you think about people who are singing a four-part harmony or you think about different instruments playing different notes at the same time that they exist in the same space they dwell in the same space they interact with each other they influence each other yet they remain distinct that's one rela- one parallel, one analog to uh, uh, this kind of perichoretic relationship. But perichoresis is a very important idea because that's how you can talk about the deep intimacy that exists within the Godhead. What that means is the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one in nature. They're all God. They're all one in essence. They're spirit. Their purpose, their character. I mean, the whole idea in John 14 is if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, will and, and, and eternality. I mean, the Spirit's there at the creation. Uh, nothing was made that was not made through Jesus. They're all eternal. Um, and, and, that, and so on and so forth. And the idea is that they're in each other, and the others are in each, but they remain Father, Son, and Spirit. And God is love. In 1 John 4, verse 8. Think about it for a second. If God is one person, how can God be love? Love, by necessity, needs an object. So God becomes either the ultimate narcissist, or he needs in need of something, some external object to love, so that he can be love. And of course, that both of those pose great problems in terms of the nature of God's real the Bible. So, yet, if we recognize God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Father loves the Son, who loves the Spirit, who loves the Father, and they share in love amongst themselves, and thus can be love. And they're so unified that even though there are three persons, we speak of God as Him in the singular. And there's also something else we need to note that's, that couldn't seem tangential, but it's going to be a very important discussion. That is the nature of God in terms of being a covenantal God. That from no until now, when God relates to people, He does so through covenant. 
Genesis 9, 9-17, he makes a covenant with Noah. 15, Genesis 15 and 17, he makes a covenant with Abraham. Exodus 19-24, through 24, he makes a covenant with all Israel. Samuel 7, he makes a covenant with David. And Hebrews 7 through 10, the Hebrew author describes how God has now established a new covenant through the blood of Jesus. And in these covenants, God binds himself to his people and his people to himself. So God is one in three persons, that he is love within himself. He, shares intimacy, he is such so intimate within himself that he is considered as a singular, and is what we call a perichoretic relationship, and he is a covenant God. So, how can we make that clear? How do we make sense of that? And we go back to Romans one twenty. The divine nature is manifest in his creation. Are we going to see God's divine nature in birds and rocks and trees? We see his divine power in all of these forces, but we don't see his divine nature, because they do not reflect his image. The divine image is seen in Genesis 1.26-27 in man. So the nature of God involves his character and his perichoretic relational unity. And we see that in man. And, and we go back to that passage. Let us make man in our image. That man is made in the image of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Male and female humans are made in the image of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what's great about this is that his Father, Son, and Spirit are one in what we call paracritic relational unity. What do people want? Human beings do not want to be on their own. They are deathly afraid of dying alone and, and to be without friends, without, without any human relationships. From the beginning of life until the end, we measure the quality and, and success and thriving of our life based upon the quality of our relationships. And of course, in Acts 17 and verse 27, Paul says that God has made man to seek him. That we seek relationship with God. To be reconnected to God who has made us. Because that is why he made us, to be to, to share a relationship with him, to be reconciled to him uh, as his offspring. In Acts 17, 28, 29. And that in Christ, in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, we can be reconciled to one another. And we can dwell with one another in understanding and to have the connection that God always intended for us. Now, we we like having friends and family. But when we think about relationships, and when that word gets used, the almost automatic association is with that special someone, with that mate. And so this is where we can bring sexuality and theology together. Because the sexuality within the male-female marriage relationship is a physical type of the ultimate spiritual intimacy, which exists among the members of the Godhead, and that the Godhead wishes to share with humans, who are made in their image. And you think about the, the whole, this, this, this all works together. God makes covenant with his people, right? We said that. He binds them to him and he to them. So what do we see marriage talked about? In Malachi 2.14, Malachi condemns the Jews because they have not been faithful to the wife of their covenant. They have not been the wife of the covenant. That marriage is a covenant. And notice <clears throat> what Jesus concludes. That two become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one. What God has joined, man is not to separate. And so they're in a covenant relationship. As God is in covenant relationship with man, so man is in covenant relationship with his wife. And, 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 and when man and woman make that kind of covenant, they can participate in sex. The two become one flesh. And as Jesus emphasizes there, they are no longer two but one. Yet they remain distinct human beings. What do we call a relationship where two people mutually indwell each other yet remain distinct? It's a perichoretic relational unity. So we see that... In a marriage relationship, in Matthew 19.6, the two become one. We see that in John 17.23, in a spiritual sense between the Father and the Son. Now, it's very important to note that this wholeness can only take place between a man and a woman. Because each are made in the image of God. We go back to that. God made them in his image. Male and female, he made them, created them. They're both made in his image. 
a man by himself is not is made in God's image and is a whole person and and has standing before God and and is not somehow um, completely on <clears throat> insufficient. Uh, but you put a man and a man together, a woman and a woman together, you do not have the wholeness of the image of God. You have two of the same part. That there's complementary parts, and that's very clear physically. That there are complementary parts that do not exist. That you cannot have that wholeness, that mutual indwelling the way that it's supposed to be, unless you have a man and a woman. And they must come together as man and woman to experience this transcendent expression of unity in sexual intercourse. And let's be honest, the male and female coming together in sexual intercourse is as close to perichoretic unity as humans can achieve. That human sexuality is designed, as we said, for a man can indwell a woman and a woman can indwell a man without losing their distinctive personhoods and to become intimate with one another physically, mentally, emotionally to create physical, mental, and emotional bonds to maintain physical, emotional, mental bonds uh, in, in a very distinct and unique way. So that they are two, but one is a type of the fullness of the spiritual intimacy shared in the Godhead, in which the three are one, and yet still three. And as complements, both made in God's image or joined in sex, then you have the result of offspring, which can multiply and fill the earth. That God shared love within himself and bore offspring, right? That God loved self, he created the world, and created man made in his image, whereas offspring in Acts 17, 27 through 29. And as God has love among himself and seeks to overflow to share with offspring, so a love of a man and a woman overflows so as to be shared with offspring. But that's limited to the male-female partnership because for procreation, the sperm and egg are equally necessary. Because there's a recognition of the image of God in the male and in the female. It should not be forgotten that Genesis 128 follows 127. That God made man and woman in his image. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and he told them go, multiply. You need male and female to multiply. You need what both provides. You cannot have that when you have male, male, and female, female. You do not have the wholeness of coming together, male, male, female, female. You do not have the ability for male, male, female, female to result in an offspring that manifests physically the two becoming one. That's only possible when you have male and female coming together in a shared bond. Then you can have the result of offspring where the two are manifest in one. And so in that sense, we yet again have that, that demonstration ourselves of that perichoretic relational unity. That in ourselves, we are both our mother and our father, yet we are one person and we are a distinct person. And that's only possible because of the sexual bond that was formed, that led to our creation. All of this is, in some physical way, mirroring a very dim way. And a lot of times we kind of get this disgust factor of, of thinking about the relationship of God in terms of sex. We need to get rid of the disgust factor. The disgust factor is coming from culture, it's coming from baggage, it's not coming from Scripture. Because in Scripture, these parallels are very close and very important. In fact, it's very difficult to think of a better theological parallel to explain the nature of the Trinitarian relationship than human sexuality. Because there's two, but they're one. There's one, but they're two distinct persons. How is that possible? We understand that through sexuality, that that's there as a working metaphor, so to speak. It's not coincidental. God has given us that as a demonstration of his divine nature in the creation. So we can understand these things. And it's not just between a male and a female. It's in the covenant of marriage. Because sexuality demands trust, openness, intimacy, and commitment. You are exposing yourself. You are exposing all of who you are. All of you, your benefits, your, your, your assets, your flaws are all very clear in front of the other person in, in a sexual relationship. And the kind of chemical release and the kind of experience that you're having uh, is putting you together in a very close and intimate way uh, that demands some kind of hedge, some kind of protection around it, some kind of structure. And that binding structure is covenant. 
And this God is a covenantal God. Think about how he works with people. He does not enter in a relationship with people without there being an over, a structural covenant. Because there's too much exposure, there's too much trust demanded, too much intimacy uh, to have without that kind of structure. And so all those structures, obligations and blessings uh, that come with relationship with him are established through covenant. Therefore, with sex... Uh, which most expresses closely expresses the kind of intimacy we see in the Godhead, you need a structure of obligation and blessing, which we call marriage. So a man and a woman must leave father and mother, cling to one another, before they should come together as one flesh. And that clinging is that covenant formation. That sexual intimacy is most healthy in the confines and commitment of the covenant of marriage, where two are bound together by God himself, that what God has joined man is not to separate. And that happens when God has put two people together. Some people want to claim that any sex puts two people together. It's not what the scriptures teach. God puts two people together when they marry each other. When they commit to each other. When they have a covenant of marriage. And then they can in participate in sexual intimacy without shame. Uh, it should be held with honor because that intimacy has is existing within this proper covenantal structure. And we understand the power of sexuality in these things because we understand the power of transgression. We don't treat sex like we treat anything else. It, it, look, how many times do we betray the life? You know, people let us down. We trust people and they deceive us. We trust people and they turn on us. We, we trust people and they go behind our backs. But is there any kind of betrayal that compares to when you have committed yourself to a, a husband or a wife and you find that they have been having sexual intercourse with somebody else? Adultery. And you think about when God wanted to communicate to Israel. Because Israel, God speaks to Israel in terms of husband and wife. That's the, the, the prevailing metaphor throughout the Old Testament. The, the, just as God is the covenant partner of Israel in spiritual terms. He is their God. They are his people. Just as they would understand with marriage, the covenant. There's that parallel there. So when they're committing idolatry, when they were unfaithful to the covenant, they weren't keeping up their obligations, what is the go-to metaphor that he uses constantly? Adultery. Hosea is told to marry a wife of adultery in Hosea 1-3, through 3, to love a woman of adultery. In Ezekiel 16, with the most graphic description uh, of Israel as a adulterous wife. And throughout the Old Testament, we see that uh, God talking about such things. It's not that he's this angry, vengeful God. He's the the hurt husband. And, and, and wanting his wife back. And so when a person becomes one flesh with any other to the one whom God bound him or her, there's a lot of mental, physical, and emotional anguish will result. That's just the way it goes. When somebody has been committing sexual immorality... By with prostitutes, by having an affair, whatever. There is great trauma. A greater trauma than almost any other kind of betrayal. And that's the reason that of all the things that can go wrong in a marriage, all of the violations of trust, all of the suffering that people can put each other through in marriage, and there is a profound amount of pain and suffering people can put each other through in marriage, it's pornea, it's sexual even behavior, is the only exception. That, that somebody could divorce their their spouse for their sexual behavior and marry another, and that's not considered adulterous. We see that in Matthew 19.9. Uh, we also see things about that in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. Why? Well, the severity of the consequences is directly related to the importance of an intimacy of the relationship. There's no other betrayal that stings nearly as badly because no other betrayal represents the severance of intimacy with the one they're supposed to be intimate with, their husband or wife, and the sharing of that intimacy with another. Because, so in the transgression, we can see the power. And that power is there because human sexuality is designed, however dimly, to reflect the spiritual intimacy manifest within the Godhead. And this is a scripturally sound and undebatable point. Because of what is said in Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So Paul says there's a profound mystery here, that it's Christ and the church. What is it? It's, it's, he's not denying the sexual import of, 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 of Genesis 2.24. He's used it in 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, he understands what it means, but he's saying 
yes, that's the physical analog, but there's a spiritual connection there. There's a spiritually greater principle that the intimacy between a man and his wife, that the two leave father and mother, cling to one another, and they be, two will become one flesh, uh, is a way you can also see Christ in the church. In Re- Matthew 25, Revelation 19 and 21, Christ is seen as a bridegroom and the church as the bride. Why do the bridegroom and bride get married? What do they do after they get married? Again, we, we, we should not reduce this metaphor down to its literalness. That gets disgusting. That gets wrong. There's fundamental discomfort with thinking about Christ as my boyfriend. There's been a lot of abuse of this metaphor. People have misapplied because it's to the church and start talking about as an individual that Jesus is my boyfriend or have this idea that they're married to Jesus. That is not what is going on here at all. It's like with Song of Solomon. Uh, its meaning is that it's erotic poetry in Song of Solomon. The meaning of these passages on the physical level involve a man and a woman in sexual terms. We need to recognize that it's being used as metaphor to be the way we humans understand spiritual intimacy. That's what sex in its proper place is designed to do. <clears throat> yes, our understanding of sex is often fallen. Yes, our, under, our, our feelings about sex are very complicated. But in the Bible, uh, we understand by analogy. Always humans do. We understand things because they are like something else. And in Scripture, we have parables that try to explain spiritual truths like things going on on earth. In the whole thing, how do you understand this relationship between God within himself, the relationship God wants to have with us? Well, the, the best physical we have is sexuality. Because human sexuality is designed to continually cement and reinforce the covenant bond of man and wife. The two become one flesh. The ultimate manifestation of that two becoming one flesh is in children where you see in the children, both in one. This intimacy is a close representation or reflection that we have of the perichoretic relational unity within the Godhead, and the God the relationship God wished to have with mankind and man in his image. So human sexuality is its own special matter. It's very different from animal sexuality. It's a major and important element of our humanity and our community. And so we need to, therefore, recognize a power in human sexuality. We need to understand it's very important place in the marriage relationship, we understand its its analogic purpose, that we can understand better about the nature of God, better about the nature of the relationship God wants to have with us through the idea and the, and the experience we have in, in human sexuality. And that allows us to have a much healthier view of that sexuality and to appreciate the intimacy God wants to have with us. Not reducing it to sex, but to realize that sex is but the, the intimacy that we share in sex is but a dim concept of the intimacy God wishes to share with us for all eternity. That we are we know even as we are known, and that we can stand before God naked and not be ashamed. And therefore, may we affirm the proper role of sexuality in our lives and glorify God through our sexuality. We've gone through a lot of concepts here. A lot of different uh, working parts, and I appreciate your attention and, and, and in interest, although with human sexuality, it's, it's a very interesting topic for a lot of people. Uh, if, you like, if you have questions about some of the things we've talked about, maybe you're not quite certain and you want some clarification, maybe, maybe you want as a pushback on some of these ideas. Maybe you just want to talk as you're going through some of the struggles and you need someone to talk to or you have a prayer request. Any way that I can be of service, please let me know. Please contact me through my website, deverbalvitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. Uh, you can also uh, learn more about the Church of Christ in, in Venice, in the west side of Los Angeles, online at venturechrist.org or, or through social media. And we're, we, we're ready to encourage you in any way we're able to. We again thank you and have a great day.